You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church. This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Jen Wilkin and JT English. We have been doing this all day long. <laughs> Kyle just told me that <laughs> Kyle just told me that I would enjoy reading a book about a couple that live in a retirement community as mm-hmm. though Jeff and I were a couple who were going to live in a retirement community in the near future. Rude. I'm not... <laughs> I, I meant it I as... I can't see it, Jeff doing it, but maybe Jen. <laughs> yeah, definitely. No, I, I can imagine Jeff and Jen doing it, and Living I can imagine... Living in a retirement community or reading the book? Both. Oh, my yeah. gosh. Yeah, I think... And there's a character in this book, and I'm not going to tell you her name because I don't want to spoil it because eventually I'm going to coax you into reading it. And for the listener, there is a book by Richard Osman. There's three of them now. It's called The Thursday Murder Club. You Richard better Osmond, that's not like, a naughty book. Are you sure you want to say not, it on the air? It's okay. not. Richard Osman, if you are out there or if somebody who's a cousin of Richard Osman or a friend or their literary agent... <laughs> I want to talk with you. I'm a big fan, Richard. Okay. Um, so I'm just going to use, shamelessly use the, the platform of knowing faith. What's happening? You're looking no, for a No, I just there? want to tell him. I okay, want to shake his okay. hand and be like, wow, you're a great writer. Um, Thursday Murder Club. It's fantastic. There's a character in this book. And if it's not, it's, it's a character that every time I read it, I'm like, that's Jen. Careful. That, that, this is, this person is Jen. And there's a is character the that reminds me a lot of Jeff. <laughs> Not the murderer. She does kill somebody, but it's only in self-defense. So that sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah. So, hey, uh, uh, I'm looking at it now. Do I should I read it or can I listen to it? Oh, it would be a great listen. I don't do a lot of okay. fiction audiobooks, but it would be a great listen. Okay. Yeah. Does Thursday that count? Murder Club. Like, have we talked? Have we have the three of us discussed this? Yeah, audiobooks count. Okay. Yeah. I think so too. Jen? Yeah, and there's a bunch of studies yeah. that suggest that listening to audiobooks is healthy for brain health. So we're on the same page. That's the OG way to hear a story, guys. Exactly. I agree. I'm I were on the same page. I was hoping to trap one of you guys. Also, we're while we're talking about it, everybody who listens to the Bible, you know you're doing what most people did for most of human That's history right. with relation to the scriptures. So quit acting like you're not reading the Bible when you're listening to and the Bible. And lots still do. Yeah. I know. I love listening to the Bible, and uh, yeah, I love dwell. If you ever use dwell, it's fantastic. So go, go dwell, go dwell on God's word through dwell. Not, right now, I'm listening to Revelation. <laughs> I listen to Revelation when I drive around town. Yeah, and uh, Kristen Getty is reading it to me, and somehow having it read with that nice Irish oh, yeah. accent makes all of it seem way less terrifying than it did when yeah. I was reading it as a kid. So she's yeah, doing that's, that's, therapy in addition to reading me the scriptures. Yeah. Um, somebody sent me, a, it's not the whole Bible, but I did get a, a, a chunk of scripture being read by Denzel Washington one time. And I was nice. like, yeah, that's what nice. I'm talking about. Do you guys have a dream scripture reader? Yeah. I just told oh, you man. it's Kristen Getty. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out Kristen Getty. Wait, okay. Yeah. Great. Maybe Morgan Freeman. Oh, okay. There's, is there not a Morgan Freeman? Is, there, is he out there? Is he already out there? I don't think so. I, but I that would no be cool. way. Okay, we'll check it out. Uh, all right, today Morgan we're Freeman, about- if you're listening, we've got a job for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's he's desperate for work, so I'm sure. <laughs> <he's really laughs> just want you to know, oh, if you've got a little space. 
Well, uh, we are, uh, we're not talking about our favorite Bible readers. Any of we that. We're not talking about, about any of that. The Bible yeah. mm-hmm. on today. Uh, we're talking about God as good and wise. And it's kind of dangerous business talking about goodness and wisdom in our current moment, right? Like, I think it is. Why, Kyle? Because we're in a cultural moment and we have been for a while where it's very difficult to admit that there, there is something good. Like it's hard for people to acknowledge, like if goodness is invoking some sort of standard, it's very difficult for people to even be willing to start talking about good and bad or good and evil as moral absolutes because those categories no longer seem to have cachet culturally. Same is true for wisdom because if moral absolutes are gone, then and if wisdom is merely the approximation of applying any moral absolute in a situation where there are not absolute certainties, which that is wisdom. Wisdom is the application of moral virtue in situations where the answer is not clear, mm-hmm. right? Where there are competing mm-hmm. values, mm-hmm. then you, if you have a moral problem, you immediately have a prudence problem because prudence is just the application of a moral compass in a situation where the direction is not obvious, Mm -hmm. right? Like murder is a situation in which the moral compass should be obvious Mm -hmm. to someone, but there are other situations. Uh, What do you do with a stranger and sojourner in a democratic Republic that has to think about borders that requires wisdom. But -hmm. if we can't agree that there's a moral compass at all, then there's nothing, there's no compass that can be broadly applied to any case or issue of which wisdom is required. So you have a goodness problem. You got a wisdom problem right out of the gate, right? Well, yeah, especially if you understand that as a theological category, Goodness is referring to morality, like there's a link there. If you do something that is good, what makes it good? It is because it's, it's, it is a moral choice. It's something that is good for, um, not just for you, but for, ever, but for human flourishing, to use a word that we bat around on Christian podcasts a lot. Do you guys remember the one of the, I think it's episode two or three of, wait for it, The West Wing? Which was and they talk good. about a disproportional response. Yes. Do you guys yes, remember this? Yes. 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 This, yes. This, I, oh, whenever I think about what goodness, is the value of a proportional response, the, the virtue. What is the, the virtue, virtue of a proportionate response? And he's asking a question. It's the question Jen just asked. There is what makes it good. Mm-hmm. Like, and that's why I think people find that episode so compelling. Is just to you don't have to go watch the episode, but one of his friends gets gets shot in an airplane. Uh, a missile attack and all of all of the president's military commanders are saying, well, you can do this, this, this. And all, all of the responses are like, he basically calls them like, this is like tic-tac games. Like what, what are we even doing here? Why, why, why would we have that kind of response? Mm-hmm. What makes a proportionate response good? Yeah. What does not make a disproportionate response good? And so that's what you're getting at, Kyle, is we're living in a moment right now where proportionate or disproportionate, most people would say there is no such thing as goodness. Exactly. And to suggest that there is such thing as goodness is immoral, is actually the definition Mm -hmm. of not being good, which again is ironic, is like the the most sinful thing to say today is that there is such a thing as sin because we're supposed to say that everything is indiscriminately good. 
Mm-hmm. And what we see here when we think about the attributes of God is there actually is a moral compass, compass and it's the goodness of God. There mm-hmm. is a North Star here where we can look to see what, what actually is good. Mm-hmm. Right. Because in, 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 in some ways, this is we're, – we're quickly – and I, I took us there, but I, I, that's because I'm interested in the conversation. But goodness is a communicable attribute of God. As you've heard on other episodes, attributes, communicable attributes of God are those attributes that mm-hmm. uh, we can share in or reflect as image bearers of God, although God possesses them in complete and utter perfection. So we're not saying as a communicable attribute, we can be as good as God or as wise as God. Scripture's clear. That's not the case, but we can be good and wise like God. We can reflect God's goodness in limited human form, yes. Exactly. Yeah. But with the categories of good and evil or good and bad have been almost wholeheartedly replaced with the categories of fulfillment and harm. Hmm. And so we're not even having a conversation. It's like it's almost like we we, we were there was a place culturally where we were kind of like, well, you re- we re- we really aren't comfortable talking in moral absolutes and good and evil. And now we've moved to a time where they've been categorically replaced. They're not even like it, it, it's almost like the plausibility of structure has changed to where we're not even talking about good and evil any longer. We're talking about whether it's fulfilling or if it's harmful. And if it's not harming someone else and it is fulfilling to you, then it is good because it's fulfilling for you and not harmful to others. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's not a, that's a radical subjectivist moral compass that then makes the dictates of good and evil subject to any given person's whim, will, or desire, as long as it doesn't hurt or impugn somebody else's ability to experience their own personal fulfillment. Which is also a very individualistic, not only subjective, but individual individualistic understanding of good, because you're not considering how does this impact people 10 years from now, 20 exactly. years from now, 40 years from now, or 100 years from now. It really is what feels good now. And as long as it doesn't impact this guy who lives next to me or this person that I work with, then it must be good because it satisfies my desires. Right. And so we're, there's a difference between what feels good and what is good. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, Kyle and I just spent 10 minutes saying something and Jen put it in a <laughs> sentence. Thanks, Jen. <laughs> so then how, how would you define goodness the way that God is good? What is your definition? Have you got one? Can I give Bobbing's definition? Sure. No. Got it right here. I, I read this this morning. I was like, that is better than what I would say. Yeah. He, he defines goodness as the sum total of all perfections. So he, he would say good. There isn't like an umbrella attribute. Like that's not the way to think of it. But he's saying whether it's justice, mercy, love, holiness, omnipresence, omniscience. Mm-hmm. He would say these attributes that we've been talking about can be summed up in God being all of those things perfectly and in, in summation. So he says, again, according to scripture, God is the sum total of all of these perfections. And that's what makes him good mm-hmm. and virtuous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, yes. And I would say subsequently, God's character is the standard by which we make judgments as to what is moral or immoral. And his revelation is the clearest summary and distillation of what that is. Mm-hmm. So his character, which we primarily come to know through the revelation of his character in his word, that character is the perfect picture uh, of uh, what is moral and what is immoral 
Um, and his revelation of that is setting the parameters. His revelation is the standard by which we should judge everything that claims to be good or evil. And it is the measurement by which the Christian is called to assess everything in terms of the question of whether or not it is good or evil. So I do think that to call something good in the Christian story, which is the story that we're all living in, whether we know it or not, to call something good is to say this thing is in alignment with God's character as it's revealed in the word of God, in the person of Jesus Christ, and in the natural order. Mm-hmm. Yep. So this holds for something like a natural moral law, right? Mm-hmm. Like oh, yeah. you, don't, you don't have to have the revelation of God's view of sexual ethics to be able to deduce from the revelation we find in the created order, mm-hmm. what is a good and appropriate use of male and female bodies. Mm-hmm. It's deducible from the natural order. And in that way, it speaks to, certainly not with the specificity, but it does speak to a very common question when we think about good and evil in the modern global West, which is, what do we do with our bodies and how do we use them? So I think that's how we know. That's why we call something good because it's in alignment with God's revelation of himself. Well, and we've talked about false stories, you know, and how, what a false story does is it gives a false version of the good life. Like that we all have a sense of, you know, we want goodness. Um, And when we look at um, the way that the Bible talks about goodness, it doesn't even wait um, to get out of the first chapter of Genesis before right. it makes very clear that God is the one who says what is good and what is not good, right? And so right from the get-go, He is He is creating, and, he, and, he, and it says, and He sees that it is good. And He doesn't passively look on and see. It's saying it's an acknowledgement that what He has done is good. And the idea of goodness, while it's tied to morality, is also tied to abundance. You know, Mm -hmm. it's tied to the idea that he doesn't just do what is necessary um, or what is utilitarian. He does what is good. And so um, it's it's often expressed this way um, that he he creates food for us to eat, but he also creates food that is delicious. It's not just food Mm -hmm. that sustains us. Um, He creates flora and fauna that will support an ecosystem, but he doesn't just create them for the purpose of an ecosystem. They are also beautiful. Um, he creates flowers that smell good. He creates, you know, you can go on and on. Um, uh, he creates colors that are a sense of, en- of enjoyment, um, that, that, that bring our senses alive. And this goodness is demonstrated to the believer and the unbeliever alike. Like we are all the benef- the beneficiaries, um, which is actually that word, uh, bene means good, the beneficiaries of this goodness of God, whether we acknowledge him or not. And this is when you get into Romans chapter one, that is a critical element of the denial of God's creator status is when we look around at the goodness that is even now in a fractured world apparent to us and say um, that it, that it terminates on us instead of that it had an origin uh, an origin uh, uh, of a divine nature. That's where our guilt uh, lies when we den- we're, we a, a fundamental aspect of denying God is denying God's evident goodness. And you're exactly right, Jen. 
and and yet with goodness, this one might be out of all the communicable attributes, the one that gets called into question the most. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've talked about this some on the podcast about how when we come to the scriptures, we will either come, the posture of the skeptic is, um, is God good? you know, reading the scriptures and the posture of the um, the one who is saying, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief is, if God is good, then how is what I'm reading an evidence of his goodness? And so it really is a starting point um, for how we even receive um, instruction from the scriptures or, or think about faith. If he's not yeah. good, then his other attributes are really bad news. That's exactly right, right? Because if he's not good, but he's sovereign or omnipotent mm -hmm. or omniscient or all of those mm -hmm. things. He's the scariest being ever. Absolutely. And mm -hmm. some people call into question the goodness of God because of their experience in the world, right? Yes. I mean, I think right. one of the, you know, you don't have to read, you know, two or three apologetics books to realize that one of the most contemporary and common objections in our experience of the world to the Christian belief about God is concerning his goodness. How could God be good uh, if this? How mm -hmm. could God be good in light of my personal suffering? How could mm -hmm. God be good in light of suffering that's experienced throughout the world? How could God be good in light of... And that is a real wrestle. It, it, it is that we find ourselves struggling. Um, and I don't think that anyone on this call would certainly say that they're exempt from this. Uh, I think all of us at one way or another has found mm -hmm. ourselves going, is this really the best, mm -hmm. right? Is God really good? Is he really trustworthy? Or are her per is his purposes and plans really better, right? I mean, mm -hmm. we found ourselves, JT, you've spoken before on here just in terms of encountering the darkness of suffering and of danger and feeling like, you're just scratching your head going, I'm not so sure. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think if you've not experienced that dark moment of the soul, it's hard to describe it until you've lived it. Uh, and that is when, at least in my experience, I don't want to speak for others, God demonstrate his goodness to us through the goodness of his people. And that's mm -hmm. where this becomes a, a communicable attribute is when he felt distant and I didn't know where he was. He came to us through his people, both of you on this call, others who just said, we want to offer you grace. We want to offer you help. We want to offer you sustenance. We want to offer you care. And you realize God, not only like when you emerge from those seasons, not only do you realize that question, I don't want to say it was inappropriate. It was appropriate. That was that was what where we were. It was our feeling. But you realize not only is God good, he is like if we we're talking back to the holiness episode, like he's good, good, good. That's where Jesus mm -hmm. comes to the point where he says, no one is good, but God. And he comes mm -hmm. to his people through the goodness of his people, which is, which is the sweet experience for us. We live in a possession and money obsessed culture, but what does the Bible say about generosity? In his new book, A Short Guide to Gospel Generosity, author Nathan Harris shows us that the answer to our obsession with possessions is turning to the gospel, because only in the gospel can we find the type of life transformation that enables us to turn our focus from ourselves and back to others, to give generously, and to follow in the way of Christ. To learn more about the book, visit GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. That's GuideToGospelGenerosity.com.
The CSB Life Council Bible provides biblical counsel and practical wisdom for pastors, ministry leaders, counselors, parents, couples, and any individual seeking practical wisdom through the application of God's Word. It includes more than 150 full-length articles on a wide range of topics and tough issues from respected Christian counselors and scholars. Visit csblifecouncilbible.com to get your copy today. Visit csblifecouncilbible.com to get your copy today. Well, I was having a conversation with someone yesterday about this. She was asking me about some of the hard passages in the Old Testament, you know, some of the places where you're like, I don't see how God is good if he did that. And um, those are really important questions to ask. And I think that the Lord is is um, faithful to allow us to have those those moments, those dark nights of the soul. So that we do have to ask those hard questions. But I asked her, I said, um, I said, do you find that these passages bother you more in the season that you're in than, than they have at other times? And she said, yes. And so I always like to remind people that um, we tend to question God's goodness when we're off balance, right? We don't question God's goodness when everything is humming along just fine. And and so the, the irony of that is that when you're off balance, it's probably the worst time to start asking existential questions. Uh, it does bring yeah. them top of mind. But this is why we say when, what we repeat in times of ease, we will recall in times of hardship. It's because you want to have made repetition and and, and recite recitation of the goodness of God when it is evident in your life, because it is not always evident. We do not always see it. Uh, I think about Psalm twenty-seven, thirteen, where David says, "I remain confident of this: I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living." Which indicates that at that moment he does not see the goodness of the Lord. Um, we panic in the moments where we don't see God's goodness clearly and think. Maybe I've missed it this whole time, and he's not actually good. Um, but if we have made a repetition of all of the the goodness of God to not just to us, but to all generations, right? I, I think that's a major function of the scriptures is for us to be able to see that God's goodness has endured to all generations, um, and yeah. that His promises are that it will endure uh, into into eternity. So, um, and I don't mean to oversimplify uh, a crisis of faith. I think crises of faith are complex, and they do not resolve according to the timeline that we would like. And so what compounds this issue for us is when we're in a dark night of the soul, because everything around us is telling us that tension should resolve quickly. You should get what you want when you want it. You can use Grubhub or Uber or Amazon or whatever. You should get what you want when you want it. Um, when our circumstance doesn't give us that, um, we, 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 can, we can lose perspective on how long we have been top of mind aware that this yeah. is a big question. Um, and sometimes you have to sit with that for like, I mean, JT, how long did you guys have to deal with the uncertainty of Macy's condition? It was like, I mean, we, we thought she was real sick for about six weeks. Yeah. And then even after we got the even better diagnosis, that. it was still six months of unbelievable yeah. pain. Yeah. And for some people, it'll be two years or four years or eight years. And so that's the thing is like when we, when the scriptures uphold for us steadfastness, that that's why, because the goodness of God is not always evident to us right. in the land of the living. So. That's right. And, and that is so good. I want to put like a period on that 
and like come back to maybe just more of like a this is not for the person that's in the dark night of the soul. This is this the conversation now is not for those who are maybe questioning and doubting. It's more for those of us who are just contemplating the goodness of God yeah. at, at, a, at, a, at, a, at a simpler level is if we ever do get to that point of questioning, is God good? Based upon what moral framework are you asking mm-hmm. that question? Mm-hmm. Yeah. If he's not the definition of goodness, because you're seeing something in him that you don't perceive or experiences as good, what objective reality of goodness would you point to? Mm-hmm. And that's where I think Christian theology and Christian philosophy really has a, a, an objective kind of epistemological, that means uh, what, how we can know what we know, a good place to stand because we are saying God is good and that becomes the framework both for what we think, what we know, what we feel, and what we go do. And if you are going to question God's goodness, that's that's okay. Let's have a conversation about that. But what is your objective moral framework for what is good if it isn't the God of the Bible? Mm-hmm. And that's something that I think Christians should maybe uh, – not like in apologetics classes or something like that. I more just mean like in, in, in conversations with neighbors and people and when people are experiencing anxiety or depression or doubt or frustration or or even just apathy because mm-hmm. they feel like life hasn't given them what they thought it was going to give them. I think the, the, the question of God's goodness is one of the best places to start is asking them, well, what do you think good is? Mm-hmm. That's good. That's the right. I agree mm-hmm. with that. That's good. And and on, when we're thinking about God's goodness, it's not a huge jump for us to talk about God's wisdom, mm-hmm. God's wisdom. You know, when we think about God's wisdom, we think about his counsel, his direction, his orchestration, goodness, like wisdom is like the outworking of the mysterious will of God in the world. It's his revelation of himself. It's the direction in which he takes um the world and all that is in it. And you think about Paul in Romans 11, which we covered when we were going through Romans, are the depths and the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. His judgments are unsearchable. His ways are inscrutable. That no one knows the mind of our God. No one can be his counselor. And why is that? Is it because God is so obstinate or stubborn? No. It's because God's will of wisdom is better than the ways of the world, right? Mm -hmm. So when we think about wisdom, we think about, okay, the outworking of goodness, is wisdom, mm-hmm. right? It's the outworking of it. It's the playing out of goodness in terms of direction and movement and decisions and purposes. And so when we think about calling someone wise, we typically call someone wise who seems to be taking a moral framework that accords with our view of truth, goodness, and beauty and applying it in ways that lead to blessing and flourishing for their life and for those around them. Mm-hmm. And God's wisdom does that. Mm-hmm. God, you know, think about Romans 8, God is working all things together for the good of those who have been called according to his purpose. This is the this is God's wisdom. He's taking everything in the world and he's moving it to the best possible end that brings glory and renown to his name and flourishing and edification to his people and eventually the full restoration uh, of the cosmos with the revealing of the Son of God and the day of salvation, the the day of the Lord. So when we think about wisdom and is God wise, this connects to omniscience, but it's different, right? Because wisdom isn't just to say God is wise. Isn't merely to say God knows everything that, but what is the difference? I've been trying to feel that out of my own mind. It's um, that God is able to take the facts and use them to achieve the best ends. That's kind of a, it's almost kind of an anthropomorphic way to talk about the way that God uses wisdom, but it's kind of the best we can do. In other words, knowledge is having the facts. Wisdom is knowing what to do with the facts. Yeah. 
and God has both. So, yeah, so wisdom both. isn't just that God is good, but that God does good. God does good. Right. That's right. Does, in, does in every good. circumstance, he acts with wisdom and prudence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He never, he never has a, he never has a lapse of judgment. Would be another kind of way to say it. Like he, he's always yeah. able to discern the the best uh, ends. He doesn't need any mulligans. He's not like I yes. wish I had a do over on that. There's yes. just a real for the, for all all of our golf fans out there. We were doing uh, to t- think about this as a communicable attribute. We were doing our institute lecture last night in the Storyline Institute on wisdom literature mm-hmm. and teaching through the, the, the what what genre of wisdom literature is, but specifically about what what does it mean to be a wise person. Mm-hmm. In the call on on our lives, if we know Jesus, to to walk in wisdom. I think about Psalm chapter one. Like, there's really two paths. There's a path that leads to life, and there's a path that leads to destruction. That also being the message of Proverbs. And and somebody asked, like, so so like, if you were just boiling it down, what does it mean to be a wise person? I'd love to hear your guys' definition of this, or, or, or what you think of this definition. Because Kyle and I, when we when we wrote this lecture years ago, we we said wisdom is learning how to live a life that is before the face of God at all times. Mm-hmm. Because if God is the one who's always good and does good, the wise person also realizes I'm called to do good in the face of the one who is good at all mm-hmm. times. Now, of course, mm-hmm. we don't always do that. But that's what true wisdom is. Prudence in all situations, knowing that I'm living before the face of God right now, today, and always. And the way that the psalmist would say that, and also um, the author of Proverbs, is that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Your yeah. reference point is the Lord. And when we talk about the fear of the Lord, and you say, you know, quorum Deo, or before the face of God, and you think about the way that people lived before the face of God when his when he revealed himself to them, um, it was they responded mm. with right reverence, right? And I've said uh, on, on some occasions that the most basic act of wisdom is repentance, uh, it's yeah, the it's right. the initial expression of a heart of wisdom is that we repent we we behold God we we recognize that we live before His face and um, and like Isaiah we the first thing we say is I repent and then it moves on from there it's not simply just repentance right it moves on to to outward acts of of goodness mm-hmm. yeah and it's good news that God is good and wise right yeah because He's trustworthy if mm-hmm. He's good and wise He's trustworthy. We can trust him, you know, not just love him, although love him, yes, but trust him with our lives and trust him in the midst of risks and opportunities and the uncertainty and the unknown, because ultimately God is good and wise. And because God is good and wise, we too can operate uh, and pursue goodness and wisdom, right? We should talk about for a second about how the scriptures warn us that the wisdom of God is foolishness to man. Like, what are the implications yeah. for that? What 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 sensor what sensor is off in our brains that means that when we hear the wisdom of God, we regard it as folly? Like, what would be just some practical examples of how we see that play out in everyday life? Restraint, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Well, it's moral like, relativism, right? It's the idea sure. that that there could be an absolute uh, moral. Um, Compass seems foolish to the world right now, uh, sure. but it's the path of wisdom. Right? Yeah, or self denial. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. self denial is a like is is something that just seems foolish mm-hmm. to hear to say mm-hmm. um, to deny self um, seems to be something that like people would strongly discourage you from you being you authentically, genuinely, mm-hmm. and without apology. But because of the impact of sin. And the wise and good counsel of God, we you should not be you 
authentically and unapologetically. Mm-hmm. Um, you should be conformed to the image of God's son, mm-hmm. which is going to mean changing some of you and denying some of you mm-hmm. because of the impact of sin, not because God made you wrong, mm-hmm. but because sin has broken every part of God's good design of you. Mm-hmm. So I think those are some things. That's- Kyle, that's such an important point. We should do like, we could do a whole season on that because so many Christians are wrapped up in this conversation of, around identity mm-hmm. and around my identity must be fundamentally good because God made me this way. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't just rate, relate to gender or relate to uh, race and ethnicity. It relates to like what I think I'm gifted at and what I should do and what I like sure. and what I don't like. And and again, that's not to say that there aren't things that God has genuinely gifted you with. Of course he has. But it is, it is unwise to live life as if God made you the way that you're supposed to be and you're not supposed to change. That is called foolishness. Mm-hmm. True identity is found in laying that True wisdom is found in laying that identity down to find a much better one in following God's goodness. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, I think another one would be the, the you know, sort of best life now mentality versus storing up treasures in heaven. Uh, today's mm-hmm. all we have, eat, drink, and be merry, that kind of a thing. I think a lot of people <clears throat> view that as the, the wisdom principle to live by. Uh, the one with the most toys wins, that kind of a kind of an idea is another one that I think pops up a lot. Materialism, I guess you would say, or just, um, uh, I've just lost the word. What's the word for people who just indulge in every hedonism? Hedonism. There it is. Oh gosh. Yeah. Hedonism. Uh, Do you think that if the last episode we were talking about holiness and that we've maybe spent too little time thinking through what it means to imitate God, to be holy as God Mm -hmm. is holy. Mm -hmm. I think wisdom is something that we, we have given too little attention to. Um, I will. Um, I used to do this thing whenever I worked at the Village Church Dallas, because the most common request I got at the time, we were a very, very young church, and young men would come to me and they would say, um, they would say, "Hey, Kyle, um, could you link me up with an older guy who can like mentor me?" Mm-hmm. Which is, listen. I understand that request. I really do. I get it. I understand the felt need there. And I would tell them I would be glad to. I know some amazing guys who would be able to sit down with you that are a few steps ahead and they could give you wise counsel and I will do it. I'll link you up with them. This is what you're going to do for me first. I want you to read through all of Proverbs and I want you to memorize 20 Proverbs. And if you come back to me and recite 20 Proverbs, I promise you I'll link you up with somebody. A good guy, somebody you, that would be well worth your time. And do you know how many people took me up on that? A big fat zero. Um, people don't know what to do with the wisdom literature. Um, they like very often I encounter people who have spent no time in the Proverbs, mm-hmm. very little time in Ecclesiastes. Mm-hmm. And I think that's indicative of where we're at, which is there is a pronounced need for wisdom, uh, and yet there is a profound lack of it. And the scriptures tell us what the beginning of wisdom is. Like they don't hide it. They don't bury the lead. They tell you straight up, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Mm -hmm. That's what they, like, they just tell you exactly how to go get it. Wisdom is the thing in scripture that to me seems like God tells us exactly how to go pursue it. He gives us plenty of practical examples of it. And we scratch our head wondering why we don't have it. 
And he promises <laughs> like, to give it if we ask, right? And yeah. he promises to give it if we ask. Yeah, promises um, to give it if we ask. Yeah, so I do think that a lot of, um, I do think that there is a real opportunity. Um, and if you're listening to this, you're thinking, okay, what's one way that I can move forward in pursuing imitation of the communicable attribute of wisdom? I would, I would really encourage you, if you haven't read Proverbs in a long time, read Proverbs. And with the Proverbs, do you know what you do with the Proverbs when you read them? You do them. <laughs> That's what you do with the Proverbs. Also, they're you not about them. adultery. Spoiler alert. Yeah. That you just do the Proverbs. You just go do them and put them into action. You don't have to look for the super spiritual, you know, Illuminati meeting behind the Proverbs. You just do what they say, you know? So um, that's a way you could pursue wisdom. I asked uh, Dr. Pennington one time, you know, what's the difference between wisdom and law? Like, how do we think about how they relate? And he said, well, there are two, there are two different forms of discourse, which I think was helpful. It was two different ways of talking about how to live God's way in God's world. But I also think that wisdom is, um, is the application of law in many cases. Yeah. So like you can yeah. have a law, it's, it's what the judge has to do. They have to decide, okay, you know, is this, uh, how, do, how do I apply the law in this situation? And so wisdom is situational. Um, it is eternal, uh, but it is situational. And so what is wise in one relationship might be unwise in another. It takes into account as many factors as it can. And so that's another thing that's kind of helped me because if you do sit down and read the Proverbs, you're going to find out pretty quickly that it says, uh, suffer a fool according to his folly. And then it says, suffer not a fool according to his folly in the next verse. And so the, the point there being, you know, which kind of fool are you dealing with? What is the nature of that fool's folly? Um, be a student of human nature. Be a student of, um, of the world around you. Um, notice what is commonly observable um, and ask the Lord to help you understand. I mean, the classic example of this is, you know, um, is uh, the story of Solomon mm -hmm. threatening to cut a baby in half. Right, There's, he has yeah. no intention of actually cutting the baby in half. He's applying wisdom to a situation so that the truth will emerge. And so, anyway, no, no. Before JT says, just uh, if you guys could see in front of me, uh, I hang up a little placard every time we do knowing faith on the wall in front of me uh, that just has answer a fool according to his folly. Don't answer a fool according to his folly. <laughs> And I just, I, it's a good reminder that the two of you, I got to have to just remind myself what kind of fool I'm talking about. I was just going to say, how would you talk to yourself if you have that kind of plaque right there? <laughs> Take us home, yeah, JT. Yeah, I mean, the New Testament gives gives us lots of, lots of pictures here about wisdom. I, I just yeah. love what both of you, what you guys just said. But like, what, what does it mean to live a wise life? Yeah. Uh, I, I like what you said. Read a proverb. Do it. James says that, you know, ask for wisdom from above, not wisdom from below. One of the things that Paul's dealing with with the church in Corinth is th th there's lots of Greeks f very familiar with kind of Greek philosophy. And one of the main kind of Aristotelian Platonic categories would have been categories of Sophia or wisdom. And yeah. People wanting to live wise life and not foolish lives. And Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, if you guys aren't driving right now, go read it if you're listening to this. Is it's, It actually begins at the beginning of or the middle of chapter one, where he is just contrasting these two ways of being in the world mm -hmm. of foolishness and wisdom. This is what Proverbs, Psalm chapter one, wisdom literature are doing for us as well. One of the most important things you can do to be a wise person is to realize there is foolish ways of living.
Yeah. Mm -hmm. Not all ways of living are created equal. You're either living a wise life or a foolish life. You're either making a wise decision or a foolish decision. And one of the things that Paul does for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2 is he says, the Jews are asking for signs, the Greeks are seeking wisdom, but... And here's what's interesting. He said the wise way for the Christian isn't to seek wisdom like a Greek or to seek signs like a Jew, but rather we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to those who to the Gentiles. Yet those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Mm-hmm. So maybe a more philosophical way of thinking about wisdom than, than go do this, though that's very true, is it's be Christ-like. The, the cruciform cross-carrying way of Jesus is wisdom. Mm -hmm. James chapter 3. Yeah, exactly. Don't seek the wisdom of this world, seek the wisdom that's from above. And Mm -hmm. so Christ-likeness, following Jesus, discipleship is the path of wisdom. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, James 3.17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. So basically, mm-hmm. it's not on Twitter. Right. right. Yet. 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 Oh, but it will be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, there we go. Well, listen, we hope you've enjoyed the discussion today. Uh, on our next episode, we'll continue to journey through the attributes of God. I do encourage you to check out our sister podcast if you haven't um, got a chance to. They just recently released their Q&A episodes, Confronting Christianity uh, and Family Discipleship, and those are always a ton of fun. Um, I will say we've got some cool announcements coming up here at the end of this season as we look towards next year, some cool resources that we'll be launching that I think you'll be really encouraged by. Um, and we are excited to wrap up this season. If you uh, haven't got a chance, drop us a review and put a question in your review. We'll take those into consideration for upcoming Q&A episodes. That's a fun way for us to grab questions from the audience. You can also DM uh, the Knowing Faith handle on social media with your questions and engineer Brad will find those questions uh, and plug them into the document for us. Anyways, we have been having a blast through Doctrine of God this season um, and uh, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Have a great day. Grace and peace.